Today on Government Matters, we speak with the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering about her new post, the top innovations in her department, and even virtual reality programs. Next generation combat vehicles play a big part in the Army's modernization efforts. We speak with the general in charge of the cross-functional team on the latest from his office. And a pilot shortage in the Air Force could stem from issues with training and culture. A look at some of the solutions from two Air Force experts. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Our team attended the Association of the U.S. Armies, or AUSA, conference. At the event, I spoke with Heidi Hsu. She's the new Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering about the top innovations in her department and even virtual reality programs. Here's a look at our conversation. Secretary Hsu, welcome to the program. Thank you. So what are some of the top innovations that you're working on at the Defense Department? Wow, we don't have enough time to cover it all, but I'll just talk about a few things, okay? In the area of AI and ML and autonomy, there's been billions of dollars that's invested in this area, especially in the commercial industry, right? What I'm really interested in is building the trust into AI ML, the trust in the autonomy, because if we have an unmanned platform that does something that the operator didn't anticipate, the operator will get suspicious and lose trust. So I want to focus the research to develop the trust and the assurance, and perhaps the ability to even dial the level of trust and, and autonomy. Okay? So that's one of the key areas I would like to focus on. Okay? Uh, another key area, if I may share with you, would be to be able to operate in the intersection of signals intelligence, uh, communications, radar, electronic warfare with cyber. Because threats today are so advanced, you don't have time to say, I see something, that's an that's a adversary, then cue something else to perform some effects, right? So it's important to have the ability to operate in the intersection so you can do it very, very rapidly. You head up the new Innovation Steering Group uh, at the DOD. Tell me about that and what your strategy is to meet its goals. Uh, so my first hour into the Pentagon, DepSecDef uh, told me, I stood up the Innovation Steering Group, and it's yours to chair. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> so there are several things we're doing in there, just to let you know. One, we're doing a campaign of continuous experimentation and demonstrations, okay, to fulfill a joint warfighting capability gap. This is Project Convergence. Uh, this, no, uh, Project Convergence is the Army, okay. This is the radar. What we're doing is across the Department of Defense, so all the services are tied in, okay. We were collaborated with all the services, collaborated with all the COCOMs, and we've collaborated uh, with, with just about everybody we know, right? And we actually received 203 white papers, okay? And out of that, we down-selected to the top 32, okay? And that's the top 32 project that will best fulfill the capability gaps, and we're, we're doing that in FY23. 
the other thing that we're doing in, uh, uh, in the uh, innovation steering team is uh, we're looking across the department. Every service has stood a whole bunch of different innovation centers, right? So we are looking across to figure out who's, who has what mission, what have they bought, from whom, and what capability are they fulfilling? What have they transitioned to the warfighter, right? And what are some of the best practices so we can leverage that across other small companies, right? And then the third thing we're doing is we're looking across our laboratory infrastructures and facilities, say, are we funding appropriate amount of lab equipment, laboratories, and facilities so our researchers can have the latest and greatest? Can you point to any specific successes you've had with that group? Well, uh, I've only been in the Pentagon for two and a half months. So. Well, that's long enough. <laughs> that's not long enough. So we're really getting our arms around this is something that's brand new. So we're looking towards uh, collecting the information in that in particular, and hopefully by next year, we'll be able to report out back to you. Okay, sounds good. How has the Chief Technology Officer role changed um, in the last few years to match the constant innovation and evolution of technology? Yeah, I think one of the things I'm trying to drive is uh, organizationally, I'm, I'm changing and pivoting a, a little bit. I want to have an organization that's informed by intelligence. Namely, I want to understand what our adversaries are investing in and what they are doing in terms of fielding and demonstrating in terms of capabilities, right? And from that, I want to look at what we're doing in our own internal research, uh, not just within the DOD laboratories, but also look at what are small companies funding and doing research in, what are our FFRDC UARCs working in, and our defense contractors, what are they investing in terms of IRAP, right? And how can I get things to better closely collaborate together. Then another organization what I'm focusing on is on the modernization initiatives, which I have a dozen. <laughs> and then uh, the last pillar of what I'm doing is I'm looking at all the joint warfighting capability gaps. Okay? And I will have a focal point for each of the joint warfighting capability gaps to fully understand across the services what's missing. Okay. And then help that tie into building prototypes and experimentation to close those capability gaps. So we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I want to ask you about virtual reality and um, kind of how you're working with the gaming industry to bring those technologies into DOD. Okay. If you look at the gaming industry, they are pushing the state of the art, right? And it's very impressive where they're going. Think about a couple of things that we need, okay? The, if we can build digital twins of our system and enable the AR, VR world to tie into a digital twin and tie into a virtual simulation, we can now encompass all of that and put, a, put our warfighter into a more realistic environment. Because you can't necessarily always get into that type of environment, right? But to create this opportunity so the, so the warfighter can experience it in as much realism as possible will be incredibly powerful.
Well, there's so much more to talk to you about, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Secretary Shu, for this. Thank you. Coming up, next generation combat vehicles in Army modernization efforts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with the general in charge of the cross-functional team on the latest from his office. We'll be right back. Next generation combat vehicles are a priority for the Army's modernization plans. At the AOSA conference, we spoke with Major General Ross Kaufman, who leads that team. Take a look. General Kaufman, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to see you again. So tell me about the next generation um, combat vehicle cross-functional team. What are you trying to accomplish? What that all is all about? Okay, so I am blessed to lead 30 people in Detroit, Michigan. They're rock stars, all-star, military and civilian, and they're focused on a couple of different areas. Number one, and the number one priority is the obsolete manned fighting vehicle to replace the Bradley. Number two, our second priority is our robotic combat vehicle fleet. So think five to seven tons or 10 to 12, 12 ton robots or over 20 ton robots that are modular uh, missions, uh, payloads. So they're payload agnostic and they can do, they can go sense, they can engage, they can detect chemicals, they can do reconnaissance on their own, it's pretty exciting stuff. The third one is a light tank, which is uh, going to be in all of our light formations. So think a 125 millimeter cannon that can remove obstacles or pediments so that the infantrymen can get on the objective. And then finally the 113 replacement, which, uh, you know, that 113 has been in the, in the force for about 60 years and uh, it, it served its purpose, but it's time to move on. And so the Amp V is not fancy, it's just tough, and it's able to keep pace with our uh, modern uh, weapon system. So that's that, and then we also have a little piece of Project Convergence. Let's go back to the optionally manned vehicle, because that's really interesting that you can have this big tank essentially not have a driver. How far away are we from that? Oh, we're very close. Uh, so when you start talking robotics, um, right now today, most countries that are in this space, and you see a lot about Russia and, and China in this space, let, let me tell you what they can do. They can, they can teleop, so remote control cars that, that have been around since we were children, uh, they can do that. They can do obstacle avoidance, so they can use LIDARs and other things to detect obstacles and not drive into them. And then they can do waypoint navigation, so you can say, I want you to drive from A to B to C, and then when you get to C, stop. Okay, that's the common ground that all countries are on today. Uh, the space that we're in, in the competition, and I won't, I'm not going to tell you where we are in this space because it, it is sensitive, is the autonomous package. So when you talk about it, on-road autonomy, that's really hard. But there's set rules. There's stop signs. They all look alike. There's lines on the road. But when you start talking off-road autonomy, the, the machine doesn't know if it's a puddle or a lake. Um, LIDARs can be detected by your enemy. Um, is there a obstacle there that's, that uh, is going to get caught up in your wheels? Well, a human would instantly know that, but the machine doesn't. So we have to go through trial and error, training algorithms, and, and uh, that's going to take some time. We're not going to be fully autonomous uh, off-road for several years. And uh, so, but it's exciting. It's an exciting space and it's gonna change the battlefield because it, it's gonna expand where you can have robots go make contact with the enemy, which reduces risk to, 
uh, our forces and gives us decision space. Tell me about your strategy for fully electric vehicles and why you would want to do that. Okay, I would absolutely want a fully electric vehicle. Uh, as long as you can charge those batteries in the same time you can fill up a tank of gas. And we're not there yet. That's important. Right. So, <laughs> I, uh, what, right now, hybrid is great because I can charge, I can, I'm self-healing. I can charge the batteries and I have a motor when I, if I get the batteries out of juice. Um, but you'd want the, the uh, fully electric because it's silent on the battlefield. There's no engine noise. Uh, it's good for the environment. It uh, allows you to move very quietly into the flank of your enemy and put yourself in a position of relative advantage undetected. Any army in the world would want that. So that, these are some reasons why we'd want it. But it, it, it needs a little bit of development to get the batteries charged fast enough or uh, replaced fast enough to make it worth our while. You once told me that if you're not excited about robotics, then we can't be friends. That's right. Why are you so excited about robotics? Well, first of all, it's reducing the risk to our soldiers. And I love soldiers. Uh, so if we can reduce the risk to our soldiers, uh, that's one piece. Second, we can now do things that we couldn't do before or without adding risk. Like, currently, if you had your scouts out in front of your formation and the enemy was coming, well, you had a decision to make as a commander. You could pull the, you, you need to decide, what, am I going to leave them there so now they're effectively behind enemy lines? Or do you pull them back and lose your coverage? Now with a robot, I can leave my sensors forward with both air and ground unmanned vehicles. I can track the enemy in, and now I can make decisions and make him or her deploy faster and then put ourselves in a place of relative advantage because the robots. Uh, and that's just one example. But it, it's, it is absolutely going to change the, the geometry. It's going to change a lot of things on the battlefield. And so, yeah, if you don't like robots, we can't be friends because that's the future. All right. Well, General Kaufman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Up next, a pilot shortage in the Air Force could stem from issues with training and culture. Still ahead on Government Matters, a look at some solutions to that ongoing issue. We'll be right back. The Air Force continues to experience a pilot shortage, partly because lots of pilots choose commercial airline jobs. But the Air Education and Training Command says there has been some progress, and the Air Force is looking to improve its retention rate. Retired Air Force Gen Four Star General Mike Holmes served as Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Plans and Requirements. He's also a former commander for Air Combat Command and currently a board member at Red Six. Daniel Robinson is a former Air Force pilot and the first foreign national to fly the F-22 Raptor. He's now CEO and founder of Red Six. Gentlemen, welcome to, the, to you both. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Gentlemen, um, ger sorry, General, I'll start with you. Give me the big picture perspective on uh, military training and what issues that we're having there. Well, we do have a pilot shortage, as you let off with, and strangely enough, you know, that pilot shortage is driven by we actually over-retained people for a little while. Right after 9-11, we had people that stuck around. It was an important task. The economy was not doing well, and so we had lots of people stay. 
we made the fatal error then of producing fewer pilots over those years. And so now we're short on young pilots and we need to experience those young pilots fast to be able to catch back up. So in pilot training, we're still using the model that we used in the 1960s or the 1970s to train Air Force pilots on the same equipment. Air Education and Training Command has some new efforts in pilot training next to do that different. And so there are a lot of new things and new ideas out there that we could bring from the commercial side over to change the way we've trained pilots in the past so that we can train more pilots faster and better. And Daniel, what about cultural issues and how do those impact military training? Well, it's, it's interesting because the, the rise of technology has become so important as to how we are going to solve the uh, pilot training shortage. Uh, and what we're looking at now is that, that innovation and technology is coming from non-traditional defense contractors, smaller companies that are outside of the, the major primes. Uh, and the culture often with these smaller startups that are going much quicker than a, a, the sort of uh, the big behemoth that is the Department of Defense inevitably leads to culture clashes. So for the DOD, it's really important to recognize where innovation is coming from. It is coming from these smaller startups and smaller companies outside of DOD. And we need a culture in DOD that can accept that, reflect what is happening outside, and embrace technology. So General, some more recommendations from you on shifting culture that Daniel was talking about, improving the training. Well, in the old days, the way old days, when I was learning how to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force, we said things like pilots are made with the engines running and the canopy down, that it only mattered what you did in the airplane. But since then, we added virtual training and simulators. Uh, we've added improved threats to train against that emulate the adversaries. And the next step then is to combine those two and take what we did virtually in simulators, but combine that with real flying and real airplanes so that you can learn to max perform the airplane. You have to experience the G-forces. You have to experience the heat and the cold and the things that put pressure under a pilot to bring those together to train them again faster and better. And Daniel, I'm assuming, of course, that's definitely safer than putting people in, in, in the air, but also saving money. For sure. I mean, safety is of paramount importance, but to pick up on what the general said, it is absolutely fundamental that our pilots continue to fly. Um, and so the question is, how do they fly real airplanes, but how do we do it as efficiently as possible? And the use of technology can really help to solve that problem. And of course, you know, along with that, if we can you know, use technologies such as augmented reality, artificial intelligence, to replace the need to have potential adversaries to train against, then of course it, it happens at a fraction of the cost. And that's a tremendous amount of savings for the DOD. Um, General, the carbon footprint of the Air Force, their training, and it's not just the Air Force. I mean, you're looking at uh, environmental impact for right. the Navy and sea life. Talk about that. Military training, military operations use a tremendous amount of energy. If you go on uh, Google Flights to go plan a vacation now, they will show you what the carbon footprint is of the flight that you're choosing so that you can pick an airplane with a lower carbon footprint. Uh, the Department of Defense is aware of that. And so if you can train a pilot with fewer actual training sorties, you have to fly. Maintainers have to fix airplanes and pilots have to fly them to, to be good at it. But if you can cut those sorties back, those training opportunities back, then you're saving that carbon footprint. And, and Daniel, you alluded to this before about using artificial intelligence, augmented virtual reality. Mm. Drill down a little bit on that and how that will impact military training for the future. It's absolutely true. So the, the idea of a synthetic training environment has you know, been at the forefront of our minds for a long time. 
but a synthetic training environment outdoors is not fully realizable until we can visually see those entities that we need to train against. And the use of augmented reality now enables that. We can go up and see these entities up in the sky. And if we embrace augmented reality with a combination of artificial intelligence controlling the behavior of those threats, which makes it much more representative of the kind of modern peer threats we may be called to go against, that is a tremendous value proposition and something that ushers in a, a fundamentally new paradigm in training. He just said near-peer uh, adversary, right? And uh, we know that we're talking about China and Russia. What's the bottom line here, General? How does improving our training improve our posture with those adversaries? Well, uh, we spent uh, about 20 years after 9-11 focused on a war against violent extremists in the Middle East. Russia and China went to school on the United States military and how it likes to fight. And they develop new techniques and new ways to go counter what we do and new systems to come against us. Uh, we still have the same systems for the most part that we had 20 years ago. We're still operating the same airplanes. We're still driving the same tanks. We're still doing the same things in the military. So we have to, while we're acquiring new things, we have to train really hard to make sure that our, our crews are the best they can be in those systems. And we have to think about ways to change the way that we do business so that we can invalidate the things that Russia and China did to try to counter. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to video segments. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.